but it's also known as a healing slash medical center. People would come here because of healings that were performed here. Um, there was a medical center, maybe Dr. Luke, because there's only a few cities in the ancient world that had a medical school, and this was one of them. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation, that section of Scripture that deals with the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Having looked at Ephesus and Smyrna, we begin in verse 12 of chapter 2 today and look at the church at Pergamum. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation, it's a book that will capture your attention. It will stir your imagination. And I promise you it's a book that will give you a picture of the grand and glorious future that God has for His people and for His church. If you are joining us for the first time, this is the sixth message in the book of Revelation. We've covered some critical foundational truths. You might want to get the Search the Scriptures app the App Store, searchthescriptures.org, download it into your phone and listen to some of the introductory messages. It will be very, very helpful to you. Chronologically, Revelation falls right where it needs to be. It is the very last book that God penned through a man. It's the conclusion of the Bible. And in this, the last book, John will describe for us the final consummation of all things. The apocalypse, apocalypsis, it means revelation and unveiling. It's singular, not revelations. This is not the book of revelations. This is the book of revelation. There is one single unveiling. And what's amazing to me is a book that unveils Christ for us seems so mysterious to so many people. In fact, it is one of the least preached books in all of the Bible. But it's a book that God promises blessing if we will read it and study it and meditate on it. And one of the reasons it's so mysterious is because like a great mosaic, the Old Testament is woven all the way through it. Of the 404 verses, there are 278 specific allusions to the Old Testament. None of them are introduced like David said or Isaiah said or... Uh, no, there, there's just a, a, a direct reference to the Old Testament. And so for many, because they no longer know the Old Testament, it's a closed book to them, they can't really understand Revelation. And some, because they have misunderstood God's promises to the nation of Israel, don't really grasp Revelation. But we're going to go through it slowly. I preach for an hour every week. You should be glad when I came in the early years. Jerry, remember, I preached an hour and a half every week. I said, we're going to separate the men from the boys. We're going to find out who's interested. And so we're here to read and study the Word of God because there's great power in the Scripture. We want to begin this morning in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. Follow along. It's where we left off last time. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. 
So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. You know, I was a little boy when we had our first fast food restaurants in America. I was amazed that McDonald's could advertise a meal for under a dollar with change back. They had two initial goals, all the fast food changes. One was speed and the other was cost. And they would try to deliver your meal in under 90 seconds. Well, times have changed and people want more and you have groups like Starbucks and and uh, Subway, and they offer a lot of alternatives and flexibility, and it takes longer. If you are a fast food aficionado, then as I am, then you know that website, uh, hackthemmenu.com. You know that? I see some of you writing it down. At least I guess you take notes once in the sermon, all right? <laughs> and what it does for you at hack, hackthemenu.com is it gives you some of the secret items that fast foods will offer you if you will ask for them. I like Bojangles, and I should. The owner is sitting over here to our right of our two Bojangles in, in our county. And if you go to Bojangles, you can order the Dirty Bird Sandwich. It's on the website. The Dirty Bird sand, Sandwich is you take the, the, the Cajun sandwich that they offer, and you put dirty rice on either side. I, I love it. I enjoy it. I ask for it. They look at me cross-eyed. But in either case, they recognize flexibility is critically important in this day, especially to the younger generation. Well, flexibility is not important to the church. There are some age-old truths that are not to be changed no matter what. We have, I just checked the uh, population clock before I came into this service. I was off by a million. I guesstimated it at the last service. There are 325 million Americans Last week it was reported 234 million have no church home. 234 million out of the 325 million have no church home. Now, people are trying to attract them. One church online advertises this. There is no fire and brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical, witty messages. Still another church writes on their website, services at our church have an informal feel. You won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make you feel welcome, not to drive you away. Another church advertising under the rainbow flag says, we believe some people ought to be gay, so get over it. Still another says, it doesn't matter how many times you've been born to join. Listen, a lot of evangelical churches are now trying to be flexible. And sometimes they promote, I think, their churches in the wrong way. They say the coffee is great, the music, it's really cool. The pastor's sermons are short and non-confrontational. I don't know about you, but I come here to worship. I come here to have my spirit stirred, to be encouraged with the saints, to hear, not just to you, but for my own heart, the Word of God. Biblically speaking, the worship service, according to 1 Corinthians 14 and the pastoral epistles, is not to be designed for the unbeliever. And that's the huge mistake that churches all across our land have done. They've created a worship service 
for the unbeliever. And when I meet people from these fluff churches, I call them churches that have the gospel, but it's just fluff. Usually a 50-50 chance they even know what the gospel is. How sad, how pathetic. The worship service, the Bible says, is for the believer. In fact, the unbeliever comes in as a guest. God assumes we will get them there because we care about them. But 1 Corinthians 14.25 says, When the word of God is proclaimed, the unbeliever will come in, and he will fall on his face when his heart is convicted, and he will worship the living God. Now, flexibility may be okay for fast food, but it's not okay for the church. There are eternal, non-compromisable truths and methodologies that God has given, but so many are so ignorant of the Word of God today that if you don't use these methodologies, they think you've missed it when in reality they have. Well, the church at Pergamum had compromised. And it was very, very sad. Now, I noted for you last time that each of these seven churches have a typical format. Jesus begins with a characteristic of himself. And the characteristic that he chooses reflects the need or the encouragement or the rebuke that the given church needs. And maybe some of you took my challenge and you went back into chapter 1 where six of the seven characteristic traits are given. There's one church where Christ doesn't draw from the first chapter, and we'll talk about that when we come to it. With two of the churches, Sardis and Laodicea, uh, Jesus has um, nothing good to say about them, but just rebukes them directly. With two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, he has nothing bad to say about them, just commends them. With three of the churches, he says something good, then he says something bad. But with all of the churches, Jesus then gives an admonition. So we studied Ephesus. It was the formal, preoccupied church of sorts. They were doctrinally as straight as an arrow, but they had left their first love, not lost it. You don't lose your love, you leave it. It's a choice, it's a willful decision. Then we came to the church at Smyrna, and we saw that they were the fearful, persecuted church. And so Jesus told them not to fear. They were standing strong, and because of that, many were experiencing harm. Today we come to a faltering church, a politically correct church, the church at Pergamum. If you want to use your note-taking outline, we want to begin with Christ's word of commendation for Pergamum. His word of commendation. Notice how it opens, verse 12, unto the angel of the church in Pergamum write. Now, if you were here in our study of the first two churches, we saw that the word angelos, angel, malach in Hebrew, angel, can refer to a human messenger or to a heavenly messenger. And I gave you many examples. The word angel can have a literal or functional fulfillment or definition or both. And so I gave you examples of people in the Bible who are called angels. So is he speaking here to a literal angel? No, because angels do not preach and teach or run the local church. Pastors do. He's speaking to a particular pastor. So you're looking at Angel Carl this morning, all right? Now, some say that he's uh, affirming that there should only be one pastor in the local church. Clearly not. Scripture must interpret Scripture. Jesus affirms the teaching that there's a plurality of elders in the local church, but there's a leader amongst equals. And so virtually any church, if it's 10,000 or 3,000, if they have multiple pastors, typically one person is deemed the leader, but he's an equal. 
He is an equal, and yet he is a leader. And so Jesus is speaking to the leader of these churches. They're in a place called Asia. Not the continent of Asia, remember. This is the province of Asia. Today, it would take up the space that we typically call Turkey. Some of your Bibles say Pergamos. Some of your Bibles say Pergamum. The feminine form is Pergamos. The neuter form, which is actually found in the Greek New Testament, is Pergamum. So I prefer with what the Greek actually says, but the translator many times will use the name that was most common to people in that day, and it was the feminine form. In either case, don't be thrown by that. You can see here on the map that um, this uh, city, remember the horseshoe of seven churches? We started down in Philadelphia, then we went to Smyrna, 35 miles north, and now we're going 55 miles north of Smyrna, or 85 miles north of Ephesus, to this church called Pergamon or Pergamum, and it was nicknamed the city of the serpent, the city of the serpent. Now, Ephesus, if you remember, we saw was largely, first and foremost, a political city. Why? Because it was the capital city of this place called Asia. Today, we call it Asia Minor to distinguish it sometimes from the continent of Asia. Then we came to Smyrna, and that was kind of not the Washington, D.C. like Ephesus, but it was the New York It was the commercial center of this province, and in many ways, the ancient world. And today, we come to a place that is really the religious cultural center of Asia. Uh, There are two great libraries in the first century. One was in Alexandria in Egypt, the largest library in the known world. The second was here in Pergamum with over 200,000 volumes. Remember, this was pre-printing press. All handwritten. In fact, when Mark Anthony conquered the city, he uh, took all of the books and he brought them to his lover, Cleopatra. But it's also known as a healing slash medical center. People would come here because of healings that were performed here. Um, There was a medical center, maybe Dr. Luke, because there was only a few cities in the ancient world that had a medical school, and this was one of them. But this medical school was different from what we would think of today. They mixed medicine with spirituality, and they would integrate the gods of the ancient world into their medical practices. Here you have a picture of the altar of Zeus. You see it there. This is actually a replica. If you go to Berlin, you can see it in the museum. Hitler reproduced the altar that was in Pergamum, and he made it the symbol of the Third Reich. Now, this was a demonized city. It was literally a city where Satan makes his throne. So I'm not surprised that Hitler would take an object and want to reproduce it for himself. In either case, among the pantheon of gods, one of the gods that was very well known and highly esteemed was not only Zeus, but a god named Nike. Uh, the temple of Nike was here. Some of you wear Nike sneakers or running shoes, and the word Nike means victory or power. But one of the most popular gods after which the uh, mascot of the city was made was a god named Asclepius. And Asclepius was a healing god of sorts in this pantheon of gods. And Asclepius was to this city of Pergamum what Lourdes is to Roman Catholics. Some of you know about the apparition that some children had in Lourdes in 1858. Three children, two said they heard the voice of the Virgin Mary, and one child named Bernadette Subrius, she said she not only heard, but she saw Mary. 
And on that day in 1858, they said hundreds of people were healed. And if you've ever been to Lourdes, there's thousands of crutches and testimonies and writings and plaques of all the people who have been healed there. Now, in 1854, Pope Pius IX officially made a dogma in the Roman church. Some had believed it on the basis of tradition, but the Pope spoke ex cathedra from his chair on an issue of faith and morals, so in their minds it became absolute truth. And they said Mary was conceived without sin. We speak of the Immaculate Conception of Christ, as they do, but they also speak of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And so then when this so-called apparition happened and all these people were healed with greater fervor, people began in an idolatrous way to worship Mary as many do to our day. You say, do you think people were healed at Lord's? I have no doubt they were probably healed. Satan is the great imitator. Jesus warned in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 that in the last days, people will come and do great signs and wonders and miracles in his name, but you are not to be deceived. Doctrine must always test miracles. Miracles do not test doctrine. The scripture is always authoritative over experience. And so what these people did is they asked their gods to heal them, and they mixed medicine with spirituality. They would go, here's a picture of the uh, temple of Sclepius. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with mixing spirituality with medicine. I hope you do. You don't want to be like King Asa who sought the physicians and didn't seek God and God was disappointed. You want to be like King Hezekiah who sought God and then used medical means to heal him. Some of you, you go to the doctor, he gives you your prescription. You think, praise the Lord. I don't have to pray about anything. Just take my pills. Mm -hmm. Now, unless it's something really serious, some of us don't even pray. But we are to mix faith with medicine. Nothing wrong with that. God's not against medicine. So here is a, a picture of a statue that actually came out of this very city, Pergamum, immaculately preserved. This is Asclepius, and he's got his staff with the snake wrapped around it. Some of you have seen it on the back of an ambulance. Sometimes it's a single-headed, sometimes it's a double-headed snake, or you've seen it on the front of a medical center or a hospital. It comes from Asclepius, but where does that come from? It comes from Numbers chapter 21. Satan is a great imitator. There are some 270 flood stories around the world. Some that reflect very closely the biblical accounts, some that are, you wouldn't even recognize it, but they speak of a worldwide flood. Where did that come from? The original story, scattered through the Tower of Babel where languages and people groups went across the world, and so now there are over 270 flood stories. Well, the devil would sometimes take a magnificent symbol, just like the rainbow has been perverted in our day, so this symbol has been perverted from Numbers chapter 21. Also in this city was emperor worship. We spoke a little bit about that last time. If you were here when we studied the church in Smyrna, where once a year, as a good Roman citizen, you would offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. And it was as much a political move as it was a spiritual move because Rome had brought such prosperity to the empire and such peace. People were grateful for that. The world was a difficult place to live and Rome with their authority established a, a, a world that was much more livable. So in 29 BC, they built a temple to one of the emperors and then during the time of Jesus, they built two more temples. 
But for a Christian, he could not bow down once a year and do that. It wasn't just a spiritual thing. Understand that there are a host of gods. You could worship anyone that you wanted. As long as once a year, you said Caesar is Lord. And not to, well, it was considered tantamount to treason. But a Christian couldn't do that. Paul tells us why. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say, Christos, Kurios, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So here was a church that was birthed in a very, very pagan place. And Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now remember, each of the descriptions is reflective of the atmosphere of the church and what they needed to hear. And there are seven titles. Again, go back. You will find six of them in the first chapter. Match them up to the given church. And come and tell me. Only two people have told me that they've done. I'm sure more of you have. Well, we talked about the seven stars that represent Ephesus. And we talked about the significance of that. Last time we talked about the significance of the first and the last as it related to Smyrna. But here, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's what Revelation 1.16 says. You might want to put that in the margin. Revelation 1.16 and also Revelation 19.15. When he comes again, he comes on a white charger on a white horse with a sharp two-edged sword protruding from his mouth. Now, the word here for sword, there's a number of words for sword in Greek, and the word you chose was reflective of the instrument used. This was a sword of judgment. It was a sword that was used in war. It was the same sword used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where David takes a sword and cuts off Goliath's head. It's the same word used in the Septuagint of the cherubim who keep people from participating in their sinful state in the tree of life. And in Ephesians, it's used of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so, remember, we saw in the opening verse that this revelation is signified, it's signified, it's communicated through symbols. So one of our challenges is you try to discern what the symbol means, and then you literally believe it. And so God uses this symbol to describe the Word of God. And Christ is speaking as one who is authoritative. And remember, he's living, he's addressing a city who thought that the emperor had the final word. And Jesus wants them to know, no, he has the final word. He is the ultimate authority. This same word, by the way, is used in Romans 13. If you were here in our exposition of Romans We saw that the sword is also a symbol of the government's authority. Jesus has the final word, and Jesus is the final government. The prophet said, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And someday we will see that. And someday this authoritative one will speak. And everything that he says will be carried out in judgment. This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is the Lord of glory and all of his authority. Now, the Lord commends them in two realms. First, they were loyal to the Lord's person. They were loyal to the Lord's person. Again, in verse 12, and to the angel of the church at Pergamon, right? The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. Twice over in these verses, we are told that Satan's throne is in this city and that Satan dwells in this city. That's an intriguing description where Satan's throne is. 
And it tells us something about Satan. Number one, he's not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He is not, uh, he's not omnipotent. He is limited. He is a finite created being. Though it seems he has tremendous power, and he does because he has tens of thousands upon thousands upon thousands. There are millions of angels, as we will see before we're done with the revelation. And a third of the millions upon millions upon millions of angels fell and rebelled. And so Satan, he operates in the heavenly realm, but he also operates in the earthly realm. He doesn't have a throne in hell that he's sitting on. He is called in the scripture, the God, small g, of this world. He's the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He is that evil fallen being who has millions and millions of demons who work on people. Sometimes one demon just needs to work on one person, and that one person can craft a way of thinking that will cause thousands and thousands and thousands of people to fall. We saw in Daniel chapter 10 that Satan has demons assigned to different countries. He has demons assigned to different cities. So for whatever reason, obviously because these people were so open to his work, he decided at least in the first century to make this his throne. Again, he's a limited finite being. The devil can't have his throne in Buford and be in Dallas at the same time. He can't be in Las Vegas and New York at the same time. He's limited, he's created, but he's very, very organized. And one of the things that he does is through his falsehood, he heals falsely. And so the symbol of the city was Asclepius. He was the mascot of the city. He is the God who supposedly healed. And they had a magnificent temple. This was a city that sits a 1,000 feet above sea level. It has kind of a cone-shaped acropolis. And um, they had this temple there built to this false god. And people would spend the night there. They'd go to the city to dip in the waters. And they said they would be healed. And many, I suppose, were. Again, the devil does miracles. And they would go into the temple of Asclepius. And they would lay on the floor all night and the priests would loose non-poisonous snakes. And if one snake crawled over you and touched you, you were supposedly healed. Now, I didn't give you his full name. His full name is Asclepius. You can spell it a few different ways. Soter, S-O-T-E-R. Many of you know the Greek word soter. It means savior. Asclepius, the savior. And so the staff of Asclepius, pictured here, uh, bring it up, there we go, right out of Pergamum, this pole with a snake wrapped around it was the mascot of the city. It's called a caduceus. My dad was an ophthalmologist, a medical doctor, and I can still see his license plate, MD2254. And on the left side was this symbol. It was a symbol of medicine, and doctors in that state were given the privilege to carry that on their license plate. And he loved it during the gas crisis because he could skip the lines and go right up to the front of the line and get a full, full up. We loved it too. Anyway, but it's a, it's a distortion. Just like there's over 270 flood stories, the devil takes God's symbol and he poisons it. Next week, Dr. Brogy will review the circumstances in which Moses held up the staff with the bronze serpent such that anyone who looked at it would be spared from the venomous bite of serpents. To listen again to today's message, part one of Satan's Throne, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV6. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at Satan's throne. Join us then as we search the scriptures.